democracy requires an informed electorate. And there's nothing more important for the voters to know in the 2024 presidential election, if Trump is on the ballot, than whether a jury has found him criminally responsible for basically trying to overthrow democracy and overturn the last election. So, I mean, I can't imagine a more important fact for people to know before they go to the polls. Yep. I can't imagine it either. Let's take care of that, shall we? No, it ain't, never is. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 98, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. Also in California on KFOI in Red Bluff and Redding and KKRN in Round Mountain. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internet. It's on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com. Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Desi Doyen, I do not know if we will have time for calls or not today. Well, I hope so, but we will try. But you will be standing by. We have yes. a uh, we have a guest. Uh, I will be getting to first, but if we're able to open the phone lines, it'll be at 818-985-5735 today as usual. But as we are on, yes, emergency fund drive again here at KPFK and could really use your support, please consider calling 818-985-KPFK. To pledge any amount you can as we uh, actually prepare to move out of the building early next year here at KPFK, our flagship in Los Angeles, the building is being sold. So you'll need to hit number one to join me on air or number two to pledge any amount you can to support this show, this station and this network or you can go to kpfk.org where you can pick out a thank you gift. And uh, no matter how you do it, please tell them Brad sent you. Thank you. Okay. <clears throat> so as we discussed last week on this program with former uh, D.C. federal prosecutor Randall Eliason about the four criminal cases and 91 felony counts that Donald Trump is now facing in four different jurisdictions, the most likely case to both come before a jury and be decided before the 2024 presidential election 
And in fact, before the GOP nominating convention in July, appears to be the federal indictment overseen by special counsel Jack Smith related to Trump's attempt to steal the 2020 election on January 6, 2021. The question now, however, is will Donald Trump be able to delay that trial and a potential guilty verdict until after he is most likely nominated by his own party and after the 2024 presidential election, which, if he wins, he would then be able to use to make pretty much damn sure all of this goes away. He can have his Department of Justice simply drop the special counsel's two federal cases against him, the January 6th election theft case and the stolen classified documents case down in Florida, which a Trump-appointed federal judge has already been slow-walking, to say the least, and the two other felony cases in New York State for fraudulent hush money payments to a porn star to help him win the 2016 election, and the state case against him in Georgia for attempting to steal the 2020 election in that state, both of those cases would almost certainly need to be put on hold until after he was then out of office in 2029. So, yes, the federal January 6th-related case right now could well be the whole shebang, as the former D.C. Uh, Department of Justice prosecutor Randall Eliason characterized it on this program last week. Democracy requires an informed electorate, and there's nothing more important for the voters to know in the 2024 presidential election, if Trump is on the ballot, mm -hmm. than whether the jury has found him criminally responsible for basically trying to overthrow democracy and overturn the last election. So, I mean, I can't imagine a more important fact for people to know before they go to the polls. It's kind of critical that that trial get resolved, if at all possible, so people have that information. And if they still want to choose to vote for him, you know, at least then they're informed, right? But we need to know the outcome of this case before we make that choice. To me, it's all about the federal D.C. case. And the trial is currently set for March 4th, the day before Super Tuesday. So mm. that's the critical one. And, that's, and, and that, that, that involves the heart of the January 6th allegations. It's, you know, Trump conspiring to overturn the election. Mm. So it's also the one that I think is most directly relevant to his fitness for office. Mm. So what they need to do is pretty simple. They need to put these uh, motions on a fast track. And the D.C. Circuit just needs to schedule the arguments in a couple weeks. They can do that when they want to. They have done it in the past. They just have to, you know, have the will to do it. And, and same with Supreme Court. Bush v. Gore, they decided it in one day. Right. <laughs> um, so, I mean, they can move quickly when they want to. Right. But that's really what it all comes down to now. That's it. They can move quickly when they want to. That is all it comes down to right now is those uh, are those judges. That's what it comes down to. And as Eliason also made clear, if that is going to happen, the courts involved need to act quickly in order to make this even possible. As TPM's David Kurtz observed on Monday morning, it's getting down to crunch time in the January 6th case. The March 4 trial date is, believe it or not, right around the corner. U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin has been as firm as she can be under the circumstances in trying to hold that date. Special counsel Jack Smith cited in a filing on Sunday night, quote, the public's strong interest in a prompt trial. 
And Trump, meanwhile, is doing everything that he possibly can to keep that trial date from happening, to keep the trial from happening at all before the election. Trump's entire defense strategy, in fact, now rests on running out the clock. The delay strategy trumps any claims of innocence, substantive defenses to the charges, or Trumpian counter-narratives to the story the prosecution tells in their indictment against him. Well, we will get to that Trumpian counter-narrative in a moment with a guest that we have uh, hopefully uh, joining us shortly, who now finds himself a part of that false Trumpian counter-narrative. But in the meantime, delay is currently really the whole ball game. With all of that in mind, Trump's claim to absolute immunity from criminal prosecution is his best gambit to delay the January 6th trial, according to Kurtz. As Eliason explained last week, most appellate issues are dealt with after a trial. But in the case of claims of presidential immunity, well, you know, that anything a president does while president makes him immune somehow to criminal charges, well, a finding of immunity would protect him from having to go to trial at all. And so that's why a finding of immunity needs to be completed first, before the trial even begins, and depending on how the courts rule or take their time ruling, that issue can end up pushing the entire trial back way back as we are waiting for a decision on immunity. That's exactly what Trump is now hoping for. It is his best chance to stall all of this long enough to make to make it all go away if he's able to win in uh, to win the election next year. The trial judge, Tanya Chutkin, has already ruled against Trump on the immunity issue, and Trump has already appealed that ruling to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. It's the court just below the Supreme Court, where a three-judge panel on that uh, D.C. Circuit will be selected at random to hear his case. Now, that panel has not yet been selected, to my knowledge, so we don't know if they will be judges who are favorable to Trump or not. But after making the filing, Trump also filed in Chutkin's lower court to tell the judge that, hey, while that appeal is proceeding, she must stop all everything, everything before her before her court. As per a recent Supreme Court ruling in another matter, which Jack Smith's team on Sunday argued that Trump is simply wrong about. In a short three-page response on Sunday night, special counsel Jack Smith conceded that Chutkin's jurisdiction is limited while the immunity argument is up on appeal. But Smith argued that Chutkin does not need to issue a blanket stop order to stop all proceedings in the case which has already uh, been notifying potential jurors of a March 4 trial date, Smith argued instead in his filing that Chutkin can still hold the March trial date on the calendar, March 4, and continue to rule in the meantime on already pending motions, enforce the gag order against Trump as recently upheld by the D.C. appeals court, enforce the terms of his release, and generally keep the whole thing moving forward so long as they don't burden Trump as he awaits the appeal on the immunity matter. Smith assured Chutkin that he, at least, will abide in the meantime by all of his pretrial deadlines in hopes of saving the March trial date. 
And the odds of the appeals court ruling in favor of Smith over Trump, meanwhile, are pretty good based on both Chutkin's very clear ruling in the case that presidents are not kings and can indeed face criminal trial for their actions as president, even after, especially only after leaving office, but also because uh, Chutkin's gag order against him, preventing him from attempting to attack or intimidate potential witnesses in the case, uh, had the, the, the response from the appeals court sort of dropped hints throughout that the appeals court is watching the calendar very closely. For example, the appeals court noted that it handled the gag order appeal on a, quote, highly expedited basis, quote, because of the approaching trial date. And that, quote, delaying the trial date until after the election, as Trump proposes, would be counterproductive, create perverse incentives and unreasonably burden the judicial process. And that, quote, Mr. Trump has repeatedly asked to push back the trial date in this case for two additional years, and the district court has considered and denied those requests. And the appeals court noted that delays also, quote, delays also entail serious costs to the judicial system and frustrate the public's interest in the swift resolution of criminal charges. So it seems like that three-judge panel, at least, on the D.C. Circuit Court, well, it seems that they get it. They understand what Trump is trying to do here. Now, it's not the full court or even the three judges necessarily that will preside over the immunity appeal, but... It can be read as a signal that at least some members of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals see exactly what Trump is trying to do. That is good, noise, uh, good news. And to have the lower court judge, uh, Judge Chutkins, uh, back in this entire affair in her attempt to move the case forward before next year's election. But to give you an idea of how long these appeals can take, even in the, uh, the D.C. Circuit, the two civil, civil January 6th lawsuits filed against Trump by lawmakers and, and uh, police, in which uh, Trump also claimed immunity, well, those cases were not actually heard at the appeals court until December of 2022, and a decision which, yes, found against Trump came a full year later. Just a week or so ago, it came from the same court which will decide the criminal immunity appeal by Donald Trump. So depending on how the three-judge panel rules on the D.C. Circuit Court, Trump can then appeal the matter again on bank to the full D.C. Circuit and then, no doubt, all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which, as you could tell, could push all of this and this scheduled March 4 trial far beyond next year's elections. Which is no doubt part of the reason that on Monday, special counsel Jack Smith filed a very unusual motion to simply leapfrog the entire uh, appellate court and take the matter straight to the U.S. Supreme Court. As Washington Post reported this afternoon, special counsel Jack Smith on Monday asked the Supreme Court to quickly consider former President Donald Trump's claims that he is immune from prosecution for alleged election obstruction in 2020. The filing from Smith's team argues, quote, 
It is of imperative public importance that respondents' claims of immunity be resolved by this court and that respondents' trial proceed as promptly as possible if his claim of of immunity is rejected. Trump's legal claims of immunity, the filing said, quote, are profoundly mistaken as the district court held, but only this court can uh, definitively resolve those claims. Therefore, Smith teams argue the Supreme Court should take up the issue now, quote, to ensure that it can provide the expeditious resolution that this case warrants, just as it did in United States v. Nixon. That, of course, was the case regarding Nixon's refusal as president to turn over White House tape recordings to a special prosecutor. As in the Nixon case, Mr. Smith wrote, quote, the circumstances warrant expedited proceedings, the public importance of the issues, the imminence of the scheduled trial date, and the need for a prompt and final resolution of respondents' immunity claims counsel in favor of this court's expedited review at this time. So this is a big deal. They said the hell with the appellate court for the moment. Let's just go straight to the Supreme Court and get a decision one way or another. Now, at the same time, the special counsel also filed a motion in the appeals court in D.C. asking for expedited review of the immunity decision just in case the Supreme Court chooses not to take up the appeal immediately. Either way, they're asking the appeals court in that case to expedite the entire process. Now, as to Trump's substantive defenses to the actual charges against him for, you know, beyond delay, but actual substantive defenses for trying to use January 6th in order to steal the election, as referenced earlier, as his Trumpian counter-narrative to the story that the prosecution tells in the indictment, well, that counter-narrative took a bizarre turn and a somewhat amusing one, at least to me, Maybe not to my guest. We'll find out momentarily. Uh, it took a bizarre turn in a separate filing at the end of last month. As our as our friend John Nichols at The Nation described it, every American who is charged with a crime has the right to mount a robust defense. That includes Donald Trump. Unfortunately, Trump's attempt to defend himself from charges brought by special counsel Jack Smith in relation to his efforts to nullify the results of the 2020 election has taken a surreal turn, writes Nichols. In discovery documents filed in late November, Trump's lawyers revealed that the former president is apparently building his defense based on Internet conspiracy theories, including one involving, well, John Nichols himself. As The Washington Post reported those filings, quote, the former president revealed that he's been pressing the Justice Department for information on far-right claims, often elevated in his speeches, on his social media feeds, and his conservative allies in Congress, further blurring the line between his campaign and his court battles. A letter from Trump's lawyers to the Justice Department makes dozens of requests for documents relating to actions by, quote, foreign actors, whether state or non-state, to undermine public faith in the U.S. democratic process, which is uh, on its uh, surface already hilarious. They also uh, request documents related to uh, Antifa, 
or persons or persons associated with law enforcement who encouraged or participated in any illegal activities on January 6th. You've heard about them. Those, uh, you know, so-called FBI informants who were in the crowd on January 6th and responsible for all of this somehow. Communications between the acting chief of the United States Capitol Police have been requested between the acting chief of the Capitol Police and Nancy Pelosi. Also, Nancy Pelosi's staff or representatives of Nancy Pelosi and John Nichols or any similar person who encouraged or participated in any illegal activities on January 6th. John Nichols? Our John Nichols? Did John Nichols encourage or participate illegal in a, illegal activities on January 6th? Well, as John Nichols notes, the Post's piece explains that the last reference is not to some other John Nichols, but to, quote, a liberal journalist in Wisconsin. Yup, that's our John Nichols. Joining us now is our John Nichols, longtime national affairs correspondent for The Nation, contributing writer for The Progressive, associate editor of the Wisconsin Capital Times, author of many progressive books, including most recently, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism, Just in Time for Christmas, co-written with some guy named Bernie Sanders. Oh, John Nichols, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. It is a great pleasure to be with you, Brad. It is always an honor to have you. But John, and I, uh, you know, not to be, not to go all uh, uh, Elise Stefanik on you, but I could use some yes or no answers here, sir. Were you encouraging or participating in illegal activities on January sixth? That would be a no. Were you in or near the U.S. Capitol in D.C. on that day? No. All right. You note in your article claiming to be innocent here that, quote, as part of the effort to defend Trump's actions leading up to the January 6th insurrection, Trump and his allies have intimated that federal agents and or bad actors presumably associated with the deep state provoked trouble that day. John Nichols, are you now or have you ever been a member of the deep state? You know, they just haven't let me in the club. So the answer would be no. Um, in fact, <laughs> yeah. as, as you know, Brad, uh -huh. um, I have over the years been one of the, I guess, more outspoken critics uh -huh. of the surveillance state and, uh, you know, literally taken Democratic presidents and Republican presidents to task for uh, using our, our information, mm -hmm. undermining our privacy rights. So I think I'm kind of on the outs with them. I've also been, frankly, a defender of Edward Snowden yep. and even Julian Assange. So by most measures, I just don't think I, I fit the deep state profile. Those guys, Assange and Snowden, uh, were are you know some seen as enemies by this so-called deep state. You also I know so. what, what's that? I think you're right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you also note that you uh, you made a number of appearances on. Tucker Carlson's old show on Fox. Now, you're sort of guilty for that alone. But <laughs> that said, you know, before he was fired, his big thing was attempting to blame pretty much everything on the deep state. Was Tucker having you on to call you out for being a member of the deep state, John? Quite the opposite. No, um, it was I was on on those rare occasions where we agreed. 
Um, and uh, it it was an interesting thing. One time I was even on, he even had me on one time to talk about um, the why I was upset with Democrats for not being more aggressive and seeking to impeach Donald Trump. Okay. Anyway, at which point Tucker Carlson did say, yeah. I, I will note, um, you know, we disagree on everything, but at least you're honest. Well, there you go. Tucker Carlson called you honest. I'm not sure I'd put that on your resume, John, but I, okay. I haven't yet. I, hear I haven't right. as of this point. All right. Also, uh, so we're trying to figure out what actually happened here. Caitlin Graff, uh, you identify, uh, who does a PR for the nation, sent over an online post that compared an old picture of you from long before you got bifocals uh, with that of an alleged protester. The argument was that we might that you and and that person, that protester, might be the same person because you had similar glasses and facial features. Now, believe it or not, John, over the years, I've heard from folks who actually think I look like John Nichols. Uh, similar, you know, reddish curly yeah. hair, glasses. Yeah. Are you sure that I was not at the January 6th insurrection posing as John Nichols? Well, you see, that's where the problem comes in here, Brad. Uh -huh. um, and there's a guy at the skating rink here uh -huh. in Madison yeah. who looks a little like me as well. <laughs> there's a lot of people who look like you, John. Well, I, not that much, but, you know, I mean, just, just to tell you. And, and yeah. so the guy at the skating rink, I think, is hiding out currently. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, do, uh, he should be after this report. Do, do you know who originally identified you as being at the Capitol on January 6th to the point that Donald Trump is actually citing you as being somehow behind uh, the insurrection? Now, you might have been there to report on it, of course, and you can admit that to me as, you know, the nation's national affairs correspondent. Were you there reporting on the on, on the on the riot? I wasn't. No. In fact, the interesting thing about it is, as you know, Brad, I've written books on uh, fights over the presidency yeah. and on, yeah. on impeachment. And on. I, I wrote a book on the 2000 Bush v. Gore struggle yeah. and, and all the battles in Congress mm -hmm. and everything associated with that. So I'm really interested in this stuff. And, you know, I, I weighed the idea of going to Washington that day, but I hadn't been in Washington for a long time because this is, remember, the COVID era. Yeah. So most of us weren't traveling. Right. I wasn't. And um, and so I decided, look, this is and this is my mistake. I'm going to admit this up front. Mm -hmm. um, I did not expect that Donald Trump was really going to get that many people to mm. Washington. I was mm -hmm. wrong. Mm -hmm. He did. Um, but I thought, well, you know, this is a story I can cover via C-SPAN because it's going to be inside the Capitol. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to, you know, turn on my TV and watch uh Mike Pence bumblingly try and count votes and, mm -hmm. you know, that process. And I, I was especially interested in how members of the House and Senate would vote on it and mm -hmm. those Republicans who would vote against and what their arguments would be. And, and you know, I figured that was the story I was going to write that day. But I will have to tell you also, um, you know, I was in Wisconsin that day mm -hmm. because it was, you know, it's just after Christmas, right? right? You know, you're still kind of the holiday season. Yeah. And so I wasn't really looking to race off to D.C., it was also so, the day after election. Was it was it was it was the day after the Georgia uh, runoff uh, Senate Which race. Which I had written extensively yeah. about, and so to me, it was it was a very very busy day. It's an interesting thing. I got up early to, and I was in fact I was tweeting and writing stuff about the play out of, of uh, Georgia, mm -hmm. which was a huge story, and I thought maybe yeah. the bigger story of the day, the flipping of the Senate. And but then I had to take a break because I had to take my daughter to the orthodontist. <laughs> and and then I got back in time, you know, and was settled in. And if you're a political geek like me, uh -huh. right, 
this is a very, I love watching things like the County of Electoral Votes and things like that. Right. So I was, I was there with my, my TV on and ready to go. And then like, like, I guess, you know, the, the handful of Americans that were watching live and a greater number of Americans who tuned in as time went on. Um, you know, I saw the disturbance in the House chamber there, and and I didn't know what it was, but you saw uh-huh. Pence get rushed out and everything. And it took me probably, you know, it took me a little bit of time to realize it wasn't just some overzealous security response, that there was actually something happening. And then, you know, you, you do what what a reporter does. I started calling people. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I called Mark Pocan, who was in his office, and we talked for a long time about, you know, initially about what was going on, but then our conversation evolved into, you know, this is really bad. How are you going to hold these people to account? How are mm-hmm. you going to hold Trump to account, et cetera? Then I was in contact with uh, Ro Khanna, another mm-hmm. congressman, and we had a lengthy conversation. And then I was checking out stuff, you know, again, gathered information from Ilhan Omar, who was mm-hmm. the first to actually say she would write impeachment articles. And so to me, it was a very busy day. And I filed my first major story by mid-afternoon on it Hmm. and then was also doing the Nation blog and um, did radio interviews that afternoon. I don't think I did you, but I did not. No, I don't think you did my show, but uh, you claim you did radio shows. You claim you (laughs) spoke to these Congress people. And I'm glad you're mentioning that because otherwise you were going to hide behind your daughter at the the orthodontist that day as your alibi, which sounds quite convenient. Do do you have any idea, uh, other than this photograph, do, do you have any idea who had originally identified you as potentially being at the Capitol on January 6th that now all of these years later, Donald Trump would be citing to get information about you and your involvement in the insurrection? Yeah, that, that was the weird thing about it. It was, you know, um, it, it was like tweets and stuff. Right. And and it was sort of like to me, it seemed like obscure social media. I've since found that, you know, there there were, you know, several folks that were like pushing, maybe pushing it out, but it wasn't anything big. It was like, Brad, I want to emphasize to you, it was something, Caitlin sent it over to me and I looked at it and mm-hmm. I was like, oh, okay, you know, there you go. And and then um, it it kind of went away, right? Mm-hmm. I, I DM'd the, somebody, one of the ones, and, mm-hmm. and, and the person DM'd back and said, oh, I'll make note of that, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And, and that, that seemed to be... It seemed to fade after that. Uh-huh. And so I, that's, that's the thing. You you always ask yourself with stuff like this. Social media is such a quagmire, right? There's yep. so much floating around and flying around. Yep. And I've covered members of Congress a lot, especially Ilhan Omar and, and uh, Rashida Tlaib, people like this, who, frankly, if you look at all the stuff that flies around the Internet about them, mm-hmm. it's it's far worse than anything anybody's ever said about me. And... And so my reaction was, okay, people, you know, you're in the public eye, people right. say stuff, blah, blah, blah. And so I, I, you know, kind of consigned that to that, my part of that part of my brain or whatever mm-hmm. it is went on with life. And, and then here's the interesting thing. It, it was obscure enough, right. That you think, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't something that I felt as somebody who writes about a, pretty much mm-hmm. whatever goes on that I didn't think it was worth writing about. And yet somehow Trump's lawyers yeah. must have been trolling the internet, you know, looking, yeah. you know, like, you know, kind of in the most obscure corners, I assume, or at least some corners of the internet, um, to find anything they could that would be useful 
you know, as regards Trump's defense well, and, and not to found a, a serious defense saying Trump didn't do what he's accused of doing, uh-huh. but rather to a defense that says, well, here are. And, and by the way, in the letter that's that mentions me, there's like 36 different different asks. Mm-hmm. In it, right? So here are 36 things that it might have been. Right. Plus John Nichols. Plus, yeah, I'm 36, I guess. <laughs> OK. And and I do want to emphasize that that while I, of course, have a sufficient ego to think that that there's some consequence in my name. Um, Nancy Pelosi's listed as well. So I, I figure I might I might not be the first in the line. Well, I, you know, uh, we can, of course, uh, about about this large, largely because it's you and not me in this case, John. But <laughs> but the, the defamation trial against Rudy Giuliani is actually getting underway this week in which the the D.C. judge there has already found him liable for defaming Georgia election workers, Ruby Freeman and, and, and her daughter, uh, Shea Moss. Oh, yeah. They were oh, yeah. falsely cited by Team Trump for you know falsifying election results in the counting room in Atlanta. They received horrific threats for something they never did, as have other people yeah. who Trump and his supporters have uh, you know, decided to falsely highlight for some sort of wrongdoing during the election. And at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, a guy by the name of Ray Epps, they've uh, been mm-hmm. uh, you know, mercilessly going after him, claiming he's an FBI informant. He was behind all of this. Have you received any such threats in light of, of, of any of this? You know, I mean, like I said, there's things floats fly around on Twitter and stuff like that, but nothing... No, I don't. I don't. You know. Good. I guess I don't take it that I've received any particular threats. I haven't had like anything that I think of as as mm-hmm. an actionable threat. Um, but uh, I guess this is the weird part about it because probably the most threatening thing is that Trump has picked it up, right? That, yeah. that they put in their legal documents. I that, know. I'm I worried. <laughs> I don't think you spend your time on you know some some poor, maybe very very deluded or very you know, sadly misinformed or ill-informed or whatever person out, you know, mm-hmm. sent out a tweet or something like that, right? Yeah. I think you look at when when people in positions of power amplify things like this, that's what seems weird and threatening. And, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm not one who goes in big on talking about, you know, feeling threatened or stuff like that. I think when you are a journalist mm-hmm. who does, you know, I've done hundreds of TV appearances. Yeah. and Comes with the territory. Yeah, you know, I think yeah. a, little, a little of that. Yeah, but I I do think that that you know that's why I wrote a big piece that I did for the Nation the mm-hmm. other day was was not so much to defend myself but to basically to say to you know the the Trump folks look you should be aware that you kind of got duped here right yeah. you've done something dumb and um and and it's just. I, I think the other thing, Brad, that's that's really important about this, and you know, I've written a number of books mm-hmm. about media, and I will tell you, my sense is that that this is the beginning, not the end, of a real problem in America. Mm-hmm. Something that we should take very, very seriously, because you know, as we see the rise of AI mm-hmm. and, and the rise of all sorts of other technological changes that are going to make it much easier to do deep fakes, right? To manipulate images, to to produce false uh, narratives. Mm-hmm. That I think we're going to see a lot more of this in our politics, mm. and again, targeting dissidents, targeting people. You know, I'm not saying I was targeted per se one way or the other, but targeting people who do challenge those who are in power, who raise objections to, to uh, you know, mm-hmm. powerful individuals, powerful ideas, stuff like that. Um, and and I also think the 
perhaps an equal danger is that this is going to filter down into society, right? And this this creation of false narratives is going to become more and more a part of our of our personal disputes, like at the at the human level, like uh, you know, it dispute divorces or or arguments between schoolmates or you know, more and more. And and I think this is something we have to think about as a society that that um it, when you're when you put a lie out there, when yeah. you put a false narrative out there, um, it becomes a challenge to society to figure out how to, you know, what's right, what's true, what isn't. For me, it's pretty easy to to, you know, state reality, mm -hmm. right? And push yeah. back in, in that. Right. I was very lucky Chris Hayes led his show with it. Mm -hmm. Last well, week, stuff like that. Yeah, but, the 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 obviously the sunshine is the best disinfectant here. But you, well, uh, you know, what? You hope it is. Yeah, well, you hope it is exactly. Um, but uh, you know that you were likely targeted in in this way for some reason because you were a progressive journalist. And you note at the end of your piece, which I thought was very interesting, how the sort of vitriol that you've seen and I've seen grow in recent years on both the right and the left mm -hmm. is ultimately harmful to both the right and the left. Can you can you uh, I'm running late, but can you quickly explain your thinking there? Sure. Uh, look, I, I think that that when we cease to debate about uh, issues and we cease to debate about, um, you know, even the people that we would back or not back in a political campaign mm -hmm. and shift over to the notion that if somebody's on the other side, they are out to destroy you, that mm -hmm. they they hate you. Yep. That becomes an incredibly dangerous way to do politics. Right. Mm -hmm. Because every election then becomes, uh, you know, it, and in, in, an occasion when everything is at stake, yep. when uh, it's win at any cost. And I think that that, you know, when you have an intersection between a win at any cost politics and a a, a media where it is very easy to manipulate uh, images or to create false narratives and stuff like that, that that it creates a cacophony that I think average citizens, working class people who just want to cast a ballot. Um, could theoretically just throw their hands up and say, I can't, you know, everybody seems evil here. I don't know what to do. Yeah. And I think that's sort of the Carl Rovification, if you will, of politics that I, you know, started seeing, uh, uh, back in the George W. Bush era, where, where it was not yeah. enough to, uh, you know, defeat your uh, whoever you were running against to, you know, have better ideas than them. But you had to destroy your enemy, as it was seen. Right. And right. I think we've just gone deeper and deeper down that hole. Uh, John, um, I, I mentioned at the the top of the show, the uh, Jack Smith has now uh, gone to the Supreme Court to try to get a quick decision from them on this immunity matter uh, in hopes of this trial happening uh, in the uh, January 6th case, the federal case. Uh, the trial date is, certain, uh, is currently March 4 to try to keep it on track before uh, the tr uh, the uh, election next year and even before the convention next mm -hmm. August in your home state of Wisconsin, by the way. Um, yeah. How important do you think that is to the American people, to the electorate, as someone who has written books on presidential politics and elections? How important is it that we get a, a, a verdict one way or another? And he could be acquitted. Sure. But uh, I mean, I... a verdict before the uh, before the election or before the convention for Republicans. Yeah, look, I, I think it's important. Um, I, I think that 
as you know, Brad, I think we've talked about it on the show. I think Congress failed. The initial failure was Congress, right? Uh, they impeached but did not convict Donald mm-hmm. Trump. Mm-hmm. That's a political response, but a very, an appropriate political response. So the failure- well, And that wasn't bill, Congress's fault. That was de- uh, Republican senators in the Senate. Yeah. Because all the Democrats voted in favor, and even seven Republicans voted in favor. A majority voted to oust him uh, in his second impeachment. Yeah, the largest vote yeah. to convict in modern times, yep. right? Yep. And so- um, but but I, I still say the failure was there, right? That was that's the the original crisis. Yeah. Um, now we were in the in the court of law to try and sort things out. We're years on, right? This was 2021. We're mm-hmm. now coming into 2024. So we've had a delay of justice, right? And yep. and the American people um, have a right to know, you know, whether whether their president was a, a bad player, a crook. You <laughs> you or I may think said. that, yeah. But but you need. You needed that conviction in, in the Senate. It didn't happen. Now you've got this this court case. So, yeah, I think it's appropriate to say that you would hope that there would be clarity before the election. You don't rush to judgment. You know, and I'm I'm really serious about this. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump deserves a fair trial. Yep. There's no question of that. And and it's it's to the advantage of everyone if it is a fair and well-handled and responsible trial, not a rush trial. But remember, Jack Smith is one of the top lawyers, not in the U.S., but in the world, mm-hmm. and he's put this together in a way that that does follow a logical timeline. And obviously, Trump wanted desperately to delay this, to take it into mm-hmm. 2025 or beyond. Smith is rejecting that, and I think he is rejecting it for sound legal reasons. I will also say this, too, as somebody who's covered the Supreme Court for a long time, I looked. I'm looking at what what Smith has proposed here today, this is written almost, you know, specifically for this Supreme Court, not for a liberal Supreme Court, that what Smith is proposing here is a very serious counter to a lot of the, you know, arguments that the Trump legal team has made. And I think that if he gets this to the Supreme Court, if it gets gets serious consideration, this is a very, very viable argument. And if it succeeds, then, you know, I do believe you've got a chance that you might have a verdict before the convention, certainly before the election. Well, well done, because that was going to be my last question. I was going to go uh, (laughs) Stefanik on you with it, you know, because I always like to put you on the on the spot for stuff that I can hold against you later. So what you're (laughs) saying is, yes, there will be a verdict uh, before the election next year. How about before the convention next year? That's tougher because, you, you know, you're already talking about a trial starting, you know, well into next year. Yep. And depending on how long that trial goes, uh, and and again, Donald Trump has a right to mount a robust defense, and uh, you know to throw everything his team yep. to throw everything they can at the at the wall, and and so this could take a while, and and so it could come before the convention. But but Brad, I want to say something important here. I've covered this Republican Party as it's evolved. In fact, I covered the Republican Party as it's evolved over mm-hmm. many many decades. Mm-hmm. But as it's evolved of late, um, I don't necessarily think a conviction would yep. prevent him from being nominated. Uh, yeah, I know. I've, I, and I've heard that from a lot of people. Oh, well, it'll be different once he's uh, convicted. I'm not so sure it will be. Uh, they they know the facts of the case. They don't seem to care on the Republican well, I mean, side. Chris we will Christie, see. Yeah. Chris Christie's out there, you know, laying it out as a former federal prosecutor in the debates. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I just have not seen that surge in his polling. And and he points out, uh, Chris Christie did in that debate last week, that 
Uh, everyone's going to be voting on Election Day. But if Donald Trump is convicted, he won't be allowed to vote as a <laughs> felon in the state of Florida. And yet I'm sort of with you. I, I think they uh, Republicans might be just fine with that anyway. John, I have got to get out. You are awesome. That is, of course, John Nichols, National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation. Uh, he's also the author of uh, co-author with Bernie Sanders of It's OK to Be Angry About Capitalism. Perfect for Christmas, uh, John. Uh, oh, and he was also, I hear, I've just heard, maybe at the January 6th insurrection. I don't know. I've just, I've heard that on social media. John, I want to clarify I wasn't there. Oh, you were not? <laughs> oh, okay. Smartly done. Uh, you can find him on the site, still known as Twitter, at Nichols Uprising, and of course at thenation.com. Thanks, John. Always great speaking with you. Have a great holiday, my friend. Have a great holiday. Great conversation with you, brother. Take care and be strong. Thank you, sir. All right. We'll take a quick break here and we will come back with, uh, if I have time now, yes. Well, some more uh, Trump accountability news this week and some Rudy Giuliani accountability news. I just referred to there a little bit with John. Uh, that and maybe a bit of darker news if I have time for it all straight ahead on the broadcast. Uh, oh, maybe some of your calls if you want to derail everything. 818-985-5735. Hit button number one to join us on air, number two to help us stay on your public airwaves. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is The Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad here at The Bradcast and bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to do it. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to make an automated monthly pledge of any amount you like, or even just a one-time-only contribution to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. The fight for voting rights, civil rights, and to save our planet continues. Please help us continue that fight independently over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate right now. Go ahead, do it right now. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Mm -hmm. Stop your running about. It's time you straighten right out. It is. Stop your running around. Making trouble in the town. Ah, Rudy. Oh, Rudy. A message to you, Rudy. Oh, stop your fooling around, Rudy. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, well, there's a, a couple of... Uh, as I said, accountability stories I'm going to try to fit in here. Uh, we all should have seen this one coming, of course. But on Sunday, with Donald Trump said to be the uh, final major defense witness in New York State's uh, $250 million fraud suit against him, uh, he said on Monday that uh, the uh, he would not be appearing as a witness, after all, in his own case. In multiple all-caps posts on Sunday on a social media platform, he reversed the decision and said that he will no longer take the witness stand on Monday after all. He said, quote, I will not be testifying on Monday, already testified to everything and have nothing more to say. 
The trial, of course, comes from the lawsuit filed last year against him by New York Attorney General Letitia James, accusing Trump and his company and his top executives, including his two eldest sons, of misleading banks and insurers by inflating his wealth on financial statements by just a little $2.2 billion each year, going back at least 10 years. Uh, James is seeking millions in penalties and to prohibit Trump and other defendants from doing business in New York. Uh, In his social media posts, Trump repeated his claims without any evidence that the accusations against him are baseless and a product of election interference by President Joe Biden somehow. He's denied any wrongdoing, accusing the judge in the case, Arthur Angoron, of being, quote, highly partisan and out of control. And uh, New York AG Tish James of being, quote, racist. Yes, James, who happens to be black, is going after Donald Trump because he's white. That's it. Also, Joe Biden is not only weaponizing the U.S. Justice Department, apparently, but also uh, the New York state system of justice somehow, All of which is now kind of weird, given that the U.S. Department of Justice just last week slapped Joe Biden's own son, Hunter Biden, with nine more federal charges in California. That on top of the, I believe it's four, he's already facing in Delaware. And then there's the Justice Department indicting New Jersey's Democratic U.S. Senator Bob Menendez and reportedly investigating New York City's Democratic Mayor Eric Adams. But other than that, yeah, sure, Joe Biden has totally weaponized the U.S. DOJ to go after Trump and Republicans. That's the ticket. And he somehow worked, Joe Biden has worked his magic on the New York State Attorney General and the legal, the justice system in New York as well. Now, Judge Engoron in that case has already found all of them, Trump, his sons, everyone else, the companies, uh, guilty during pre-trial proceedings. The only question of note now is how much they will have to repay the state and whether the entire company will be dissolved and the Trumps uh, prevented from ever doing business in the state again. Testimony in the case is expected to finish up before Christmas. And closing arguments are now scheduled for January. In a not unrelated matter and a uh, similar civil case where the defendant was already found guilty during pretrial proceedings before the trial itself even began, opening statements began on Monday in a trial to determine how much our friend Rudy, Rudy Giuliani, will have to pay to two former Georgia election workers after he was found liable of defaming them with baseless claims that they committed fraud in the 2020 election. Ruby Freeman and her daughter, Wandrea Shea Moss, as she's known, Shea Moss, sued Giuliani over the bogus claims that they say upended their lives. The former New York City mayor and former federal prosecutor was found to have defamed both of the women including by falsely claiming that they were handling what he alleged at the time were USB drives when they were counting votes in the Fulton County, Georgia counting room in Atlanta, handing them around, quote, like they were vials of heroin or cocaine. In reality, 
They were not USB drives that they were handing around trying to uh, steal the election. They were exchanging a ginger mint. Freeman and Moss received, quote, overwhel- an overwhelming amount of, quote, vile, racist, hateful comments that were fueled by Giuliani and his co-conspirators. One of their one of their attorneys told jurors as the uh, case opened on Monday, Giuliani attorney Joseph Sibley, for his part, told jurors there's no question that Freeman and Moss were harmed and that they are, quote, good people. Well, that is thoughtful. How nice of him to say that now. But he added that the punishment must match the crime. He said Giuliani never promoted racism or violence. Other than that whole point about these two black women passing around USB drives like they were vials of heroin or cocaine. And uh, his attorney said that uh, the, the millions of dollars Freeman and Moss are seeking would be the, quote, civil equivalent of the death penalty for Rudy Giuliani. It would be the end of Mr. Giuliani, Sibley added. I'm not very sad about that, I will note. Uh, It's interesting, uh, you know, that they make that claim because the elderly Ruby Freeman thought it might be the end for her when she was hiding under a table in her house, calling 911 as members of Trump and Giuliani's goon squad were banging on her door to be let in just days after the election. Several of those goons, including Trump and Giuliani themselves, have now been criminally indicted for their harassment of Freeman and Moss in Fulton County. In the uh, the uh, D.A. Fonnie Willis's uh, broad criminal conspiracy case against Trump and Giuliani and 18 others. But their lives have been overturned. Uh, you know, she the, the, the daughter who had worked for years as an election official uh, has left that job. She says she does not like going out anywhere with her mother because her mother might accidentally refer to her by name. And she doesn't know what will happen, what people will, you know, will try to do with her after receiving all of these uh, death threats and, and, and racist comments. The judge found uh, Giuliani liable earlier this year in this case after uh, Giuliani had repeatedly snubbed court orders to turn over evidence in the case to the pair. U.S. District Judge Beryl Howell ruled in August, quote, just as taking shortcuts to win an election carries risks, even potential criminal liability, bypassing the discovery process carries serious sanctions as well. I mean, if Rudy Giuliani truly cares about what happened, I'm sorry, what he did to those women, then he should have complied with court orders. Yeah, but it he didn't. It seems like. And he, he didn't. 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 And it makes you wonder why he didn't. Well, he didn't turn What's over. What's he the, hiding? Uh, he's hiding all of the discovery documents. So he was uh, sanctioned about $250,000 by the judge for that, already determined to be guilty of defamation. And now uh, the pair here is seeking a sum ranging from $15.5 million to $43 million, inclusive of special damages 
Freeman and Moss will, quote, ask the jury to award compensatory damages for the severe emotional distress caused by defendant Giuliani and his co-conspirators between 2020 through the present, present, including based on plaintiff's mental pain and suffering, fear, inconvenience, nervousness, indignity, insult, humiliation or embarrassment that plaintiffs suffered directly because of defendant Giuliani and his co-conspirators conduct. Freeman and Moss will also ask the jury to award punitive damages against defendant Giuliani as a punishment for his outrageous conduct and to deter him and others from engaging in that kind of conduct in an amount to be determined by the jury. The only issue remaining in this trial will be for a jury to determine how much defendant Giuliani owes to plaintiffs for the damage his conduct caused wrote the attorneys for Freeman and Moss. So, yeah, the end of Giuliani. Uh, pardon me if I'm not uh, all too uh, broken up about that. Giuliani knew exactly what he was doing for years as an attorney. This is not some, you know, jerk off the street. He knew what he was doing and he kept doing. And frankly, he continues to do. And he will continue to do until he is held accountable and until it is the end for Rudy Giuliani. All right, we have got to get out. My thanks once again to our uh, our guest today, John Nichols, the great John Nichols of the nation. And to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. Oh, oh also, I'm sorry. Thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, and to yes, Wendell Handy, our uh, board operator. Thank you, Wendell. Uh, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us, if you missed any portion of today's program, you can uh, give it another listen anytime by downloading it for free from bradblog.com. No paywall there. Thanks to all of you for supporting this program. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks, Mastodons, and sites still known as Twitter, you'll find me at the Bradblog. We will see you there until we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate.